of you who are joining us by web stream, thank you so much for tuning in this morning. We've been enjoying the presence of God in just a wonderful way, and we're always thankful for the opportunity to open his word and hear what the Spirit of God is speaking to the church. Well, we are back to our series today on praying apostolic prayers. Prayer is so vital, prayer is so integral, prayer is so critical and important to our lives as believers. And there are no better prayers to pray than the prayers that are recorded for us in the Word of God. And if you're interested in growing your prayer life, then open the Bible and pray. Just don't read the Scripture, pray the Scripture. And the best examples of those prayers are found in the New Testament written by the apostles. So this morning, we are going to be looking at Paul's prayer to the Colossian Christians, which includes us because the Word of God has been written for you and for me, even though at the time it was directed to a special group of people. We are the body of Christ, and it's the living Word, the eternal Word of God that has relevance for us each and every day of our lives. Will you turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 1, and we will read together verses 9 through 12. And I invite you to read in unison with me. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And may the Lord add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. Now, we uh, know that these letters, many that Paul wrote, he was writing from a Roman prison. He had never met the Colossian Christians. So many of the churches we know Paul founded in the New Testament, but this was not one of them. This church was actually founded by Epaphras, who was one of Paul's close associates, who then reported to Paul about the progress that these Christians were making in the Lord. And so Paul writes, after hearing this report from Epaphras, these words, for this cause. What cause? What did Epaphras have to say to the Apostle Paul about the Colossian Christians? The things that he heard from uh, Epaphras, first of all, were these, that the word they believed was bringing forth fruit in their lives. Now, we need to know that when the gospel is genuinely received and believed, there are many people who hear the word of God, but it just goes into their ears. It never gets down into their hearts. But for these Colossian Christians, they heard the word, they received the word, they believed the word, and the Apostle Paul said as a result of that, it is bringing forth fruit. What is that fruit 
That fruit was faith. What's faith? It's trust. It's commitment. You don't just say, I trust in Jesus. You trust in him so much that you with a whole heart commit the entirety of your life over to him. So when we receive the word of God, by faith, we give our lives over to Jesus Christ. Did you hear what the Apostle Paul said? It's a life that is given over to Jesus Christ, not to a church, not to a movement, not to an organization, not even to a creed. It's a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that when you found Jesus, you found a personal, intimate relationship with the Son of God? Not with a church, not with a pastor, not with some charismatic leader, not with some conference, but with Jesus Christ. And all of us need to check our focus today because if you have your focus on anything but the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, somewhere along the way, you're going to be disappointed. I hate to say this, but there have been scores and myriads actually of people who are no longer worshiping in God's house today because they did not set their gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. Their sights were set on a church. Their sights were set on a pastor, and that pastor disappointed them. That pastor preached something that just didn't hit them right, and they're no longer in that church. But when our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, our faith is on solid ground. And come what may, whatever happens, whatever is said, isn't said, whoever and whatever, it matters not. Because the only thing that matters is my relationship with Jesus Christ. And no man and no creed and no religion is going to mess with that. Amen? Amen. So let's check our focus today. Is it set on the Lord Jesus Christ? Secondly, in the report that he received from Epaphras, Paul learned that there were false teachers who were creeping in and infiltrating the church. And as a result, it was turning the attention of the believers away from Christ and onto themselves. That's a very dangerous thing for us to do as Christians. And you know, when we think about the early church, we think, wow, that church was born in power and they were victorious and they did mighty exploits for God. But let's never lose sight of the fact that they were a target of the enemy. They were under constant attack. And if the enemy could not bring hurt or harm to the church from outside forces, then he would do something on the inside of the church to bring strife and division. And we know that when that happens, there's a problem. Because it's only when the church of God is in unity. Isn't that what it was on the day of Pentecost? They were with one mind and one accord. There weren't different agendas floating around. They were with one mind and one accord, and that was the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ, and that the Spirit of God would reign supreme and have his rule, his reign in the church, and do what he wanted to do. We must never be ignorant of the enemy's devices. 
but always to strive to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because the word of God tells us in Psalm 133 that when brethren dwell together in unity, it is in that place that God commands the blessing. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that when we as believers in this local expression of the body of Christ at High Street Worship Center, when we have one mind, we have one accord, everything else is peripheral. It is just Jesus and only Jesus and the glory and the honor of Jesus and all Holy Spirit come and have your sweet way. There God commands the blessing. There God says, that's the place where I want to come and dwell. That's the place where I want to come and reveal my power and glory. And so Paul says, for this reason, since the day we heard all about this, we do not cease praying for you and to ask. You know, Paul was serious about this matter of prayer. Sadly, in this 21st century Christianity, when someone talks to us about a need, we feel it's our obligation to say, I'm praying for you. But let's examine our hearts this morning. Are we really, truly praying for them? Paul was praying that the work of God and the kingdom of God would advance in the lives of these believers. Paul had a passion to see that every believer at Colossae would fulfill their God-ordained purpose and destiny, that they wouldn't go through the motions, that they wouldn't just go through religious rituals, but they would experience the fullness of God and walk in the destiny that God had purposed for them. Well, I had to ask myself, as I ask you this morning, to just let's examine our hearts. How are we doing on the score? Are we praying for those that God has brought into our lives? Are we praying for those that we know have just a, a baby relationship with Jesus Christ? They need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We just can't leave them hanging out there. We need to nurture them, not only by discipling them, but also by praying for them that the seed that was planted in their heart would find good grace as uh, Janae prayed this morning, that it would find a, a place of lodging so that it could grow and bear fruit in the hearts and the lives of those who receive and hear the word of God. Praying for those who are weak in the faith, and there are so many in Christendom today who are not truly grounded and firm in their faith. Once they leave church, they're leaving with a little high, but the first bad thing that happens with them, they're wrecked, they're ruined, they're depressed, they're discouraged, they're ready to just toss in the towel. But if we pray for them that God would strengthen them with might by his spirit in their inner man, that they would rise up in courage, that the spirit of God would so fill their lives that their faith would grow and come into a deeper experience of intimacy with Jesus Christ. Praying for those whose faith is on the verge of shipwreck because of the great trial and test that they are enduring. We know what it's like going through the fiery furnace it's a difficult place, and we as brothers and sisters need to be holding up those who are going through these difficult experiences so that God might strengthen and encourage them. 
And so Paul is also praying that these Colossian Christians would be equipped to war against the heresy that is finding its way into the church. Let's answer the question, what exactly was that heresy? There were false teachers who were coming into the church. Now understand, the, the, a lot of these people are Jewish believers. And I mean, they were glued to the law of Moses. And now all of a sudden, they're being told that Jesus is all that you need. Well, these false teachers are coming in and saying, you know, Jesus, yes, you need him, but he's truly not all that you need. He's not enough. You need a deeper spiritual revelation of knowledge that some of us have and others don't, but you all need to get it. They were called Gnostics. And the heresy in the early church was called Gnosticism. It claimed, first of all, that Jesus was not enough. And you know what? When people hear that, it seems that there is this tendency within the human heart to be so easily deceived because we're always looking for something more. Now, let's be honest. We're always looking for a, a, a bigger thrill, a bigger chill, something better. And that's just part of who we are. I'm sorry. Let's look at our great, great, great grandparents, Adam and Eve. They were placed in that beautiful garden. They had everything they could ever want or dream of, including the presence of God. Can you even imagine? But when the enemy came with this subtle suggestion that, hey, guys, you don't have all that you could have. There's more that you could be have. Just, just take a piece of that fruit, and you'll know what I'm talking about. And that's a deception that comes into our lives. I'm always amused by those Christians who are always seeking for some deeper revelation when they're not even walking in the light of the revelation that they already have. And we need to war against that deception. Because when we are not walking in the light of the revelation of the truth of God's word that we already know, why would we be looking for something more? I'll never forget being at Keswick several years ago and having the privilege of sitting there and listening to Dr. Stephen Offer, just a great pulpiteer. You know I love great preaching. He was one of the greatest preachers of all time. And he made this statement that I will never forget. Light obeyed bringeth light, but light rejected bringeth night. Next slide, please. So we need to be so careful. I'm sorry, it was the slide about that light. Maybe I did not place it in right chronology, forgive me. But just write that down. I didn't even ask. Do any of you have any paper or pencil? Because, you know, when we're hearing the word of God, it's good to write some things down. Yeah, I see some of that. That's, that's very, very encouraging. Because, yeah, let's be old school, uh, Deborah, indeed. Indeed, because, you know, uh, it's something about our minds that are very, very forgetful, and you get to be my age, and it really gets bad. David, maybe you could help me with some of that. But <laughs> it, it's really important because when we write things down, we have a tendency to be able to recall them so much more uh, easily, and they have a sticking place in our hearts. So Paul wars against this, and how does he war against this deception that uh, these Gnostics brought in the church? He writes this letter, and he focuses on one thing, 
And that one thing is the preeminence of Christ. Notice Paul did not write about the prominence of Christ. And there's a difference between preeminence and prominence. He is writing about the one who is higher than any other. I was looking for another word for preeminence, and I found this synonym that I think is incredible. It's incomparability. You know, when it comes to Jesus, there is nothing and no one that can even begin to compare to him. So know this, that when you find Jesus, you have found the one whom your soul longs for. There is nothing and no one that you need to find beyond the Lord Jesus Christ to meet even the deepest needs of your life. And in this letter, Paul underscores that Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is all that we need. There's nothing else that you need beside Jesus? Have you found him? Is he real to you? Are you walking in a personal relationship with him today? I just need to take a moment to read some of Paul's statements about Christ's preeminence as he just obliterates this Gnostic idea that Jesus is not enough, as he refutes these voices that says you need something more. Listen to uh, chapter 1 in Colossians, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to see the invisible God? Take a look at Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, by him... Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Spirit beings, all created by Jesus. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Oh my goodness. When you think of the powers and the authorities that there are in the earth, seen and unseen, and the unseen are so much more powerful, there is one who is preeminent over every power, over every dominion, over every authority, and his name is Jesus. That's why we could sing today. We'll shout and say and speak the name of Jesus because his name is above every other name. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Can you imagine what kind of cataclysmic chaos there would be if everything in the universe did not maintain itself in perfect rotation, Jesus, by his power, is holding it all together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may have the are you with me today? That in everything he may have the... Are you excited about Jesus being preeminent over all things? That he may have the preeminence. Hallelujah. Now, there was another aspect, actually, of this Colossian heresy. And this was the idea that man is made of body and spirit. 
but they're totally separate entities and the body really doesn't matter. If you gave your heart to Jesus and you're in the church and you're religious and you're observing the laws of God, well, you could do whatever you want with your body. Even if it's the grossest sin, there's no concern there. And I'm, I'm cautioning because I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to say it anyhow. In the church of Jesus Christ, in the church of Jesus Christ in this 21st century, we've lost sense of the reality that this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And not only are we to maintain it in good health, we are to maintain it in holiness and in purity. There are Christians today who are in and out of church as if they're these wonderful, wonderful Christians, and yet they're sleeping with their boyfriend and girlfriend and think nothing of it. They think nothing of sitting in front of Netflix movies that are R-rated, that have all kinds of sex and debauchery and filth. That's coming through this eye gate into this temple, and the Holy God is dwelling here. How can that kind of pollution dwell with that kind of holiness? That's heresy. And there are Christians who don't understand that, don't embrace it because we've been so infiltrated with the mores and the social norms of this world as Christians are always talking about all these things that are supposed to sound so normal. But are they normal against the standard of God's word? What happened to the doctrine of holiness in our lives? Without holiness... Jesus said, no man shall see God. Why is it that anything and everything goes? Why is there so much compromise in our lives? And then we wonder why we're not walking in victory. We wonder why we can't experience the presence and the peace and the joy and the grace of God in our lives. We bought into the lie that we need to live politically correct lives don't talk about sin. Don't talk about what God says is black. Whitewash it. Make it gray. Make it something that's acceptable, something that is palatable. And we are under a delusion as those Christians, and I say shame on those Christians who are so glad and so proud to belong to this woke generation. So much of what is woke is against, first of all, sanity, and secondly, against the Word of God. I'm sorry, but I'm going to tell you the truth today. God called me to preach the truth of God's Word. I don't mean to offend anybody, but if the Word of God offends, then so be it, because that offense is going to bring us into alignment and into a place where we can find blessing, where we can find grace, where we can find the fullness of all that Jesus Christ has for us. So in confronting these errors, Paul prays these specific things beginning in verse 9, that the Colossian Christians should become, first of all, spiritually intelligent disciples. And in verse 10, he begins then that they also become spiritually disciplined 
disciples. We're only going to have time this morning to deal with the first. We need to understand this morning, whose side are we on? Which side of the church are we on? Are we church people or are we kingdom people? If we're kingdom people, then we take this matter really, really seriously and understand that if we are going to walk worthy of this calling by which we have been called, then we need to be smart. We need to be spiritually intelligent. We need to be wise. And if you don't know what God says in his word about what you need to know, as to how God expects and requires of us to walk as believers, then we've just fallen on the other side of the church and we're just church people. So let's answer the question this morning, what constitutes spiritual intelligence? Now, I think you recall when we were in Ephesians, Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would be filled with the knowledge of God. That's part of spiritual intelligence. And here in Colossians, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Paul's praying for knowledge. Knowledge? That sounds like school. That sounds like books. That sounds like something I'm not interested in as much as I'm interested in the experience. I want to feel the glory. Well, feeling the glory without getting grounded in the knowledge of who God is isn't going to get you anywhere in your Christian walk. I know us charismatics, we love the experience, but we can't love the experience more than we love the knowledge first of who God is and then knowing what God wills what he wants, what he requires of us as we walk this Christian life. You must come to see the great challenge of bringing these two into balance, knowledge and experience. When we bring them together, then we grow in a healthy and in a wholesome way. It's like saying, you know, what is more important, reading the word or prayer? Well, they're equally important. You can't do one without the other in order for them to be effective. If you're always praying, chances, and you're never reading the word, chances are all you're doing is uh, being a little bless me cub. God bless me and heal me and do this for me and provide that for me and bless so-and-so and bless and bless and bless. Well, what about a prayer like this? When, when have we prayed this prayer? When have we prayed that God fill me with the knowledge of your will? Knowledge frees us because the scripture says we know the truth and the truth sets us free. There are actually two words in the original language in which the scriptures were written for knowledge. The first is gnosis, which simply means to know. That's the most basic definition and it, it sounds like academic knowledge, book smarts, but the Gnostics we're even a little more than that coming into the church as we've already alluded and claiming to possess a higher knowledge, but it was not from the word of God. It was a knowledge that was acquired from some mystical higher plane. 
You know those super spiritual people who are on a higher plane and they look down on everyone else because we just haven't measured up to where they are. I want you to know the, the people in my life that I have found are closest to God do not walk around with that holy aura of who they are. They are the most down-to-earth, fun-loving, normal people, but they have learned how to live a natural life supernaturally. And it's a blessing to know these people because they walk in an intimate relationship with God. They're filled with the knowledge of who God is. They're filled with the knowledge of what God wants from their lives. And that's the kind of life we should all aspire to have and to know. Be careful of those who are super spiritual, who claim to have some extra biblical revelation. I want you to know today, if whatever they give you is not somewhere in this word, then do not believe it. This is the rule. This is the final ultimate authority and I know some people claim to have these awesome spiritual experiences well have this spiritual experiences that's between you and God but don't tell me that that's something that I need to have if it's not in the Word of God let's go after God and who he is what his will is and all of these other things will be added to us remember Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so often the deceptions that have come into the church have come through those who had this super spiritual. And yeah, even when they prayed, you thought, wow, can they pray such beautiful prayers? But God knows what's going on in their heart, in their mind. Are they truly living under the lordship of Jesus Christ? The second word for knowledge is epignosis, and this is the knowledge that Paul is praying for the Colossian Christians. It's a precise and a correct knowledge. It's the result of having a personal experience with God through his word and by his spirit. See, Paul doesn't want us to read a theology textbook that explains who God is. It's kind of interesting when, when you go to seminary, they, they throw a theology textbook at you and everything in that textbook tells you all about God. But you get through that semester and guess what? You have head knowledge, but it's done nothing for your spirit in coming to know who God truly is. Because God wants us to have this intimate, personal, life-giving relationship with him. So to get there, Paul prays that we would be filled with what? Filled with the knowledge of his will. You know, that, that's a big topic in Christendom, isn't it? In our lives, it's always about, God, what do you want? God, who's that girl I, I'm supposed to marry? And some young men and young women as well get real, real anxious about that. If they turn 20 and they still don't have that special someone in their life, it's like, what's going on? God, who is it? Show me. Show me who it is. What college should I attend? What car should I buy? What area of academic discipline should I pursue? 
You know, if we sought for the fullness of the knowledge of God's will for our lives, I believe all of these other questions would be easily answered. Because when we're walking in the will of God, our whole heart's passion and objective is, God, I want to do what you have called me to do. And I've said this earlier, are we, are we doing what God has called us to do? There's an awful lot in this word that reveals, reveals the clear will of God that a lot of us as Christians aren't even doing. And I'll confess, here's one that I fail at. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 18. Give thanks to God no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. Why? This is God's will. Are we walking in the will of the Lord? If we're not able to give thanks in whatever circumstance we're in, not for the circumstance, but in the circumstance, knowing that God is with me in that circumstance. It is there for a reason. He's working it together for his good, for my good and his glory. And in that, I can say, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, because you're conforming me to the image of your son. That's the will of God. Are we as passionate about being conformed to the image of God's Son as we are about knowing what the will of God is about all of these worldly things that we want to know? God, what's your will about this? What's your will about that? Now, it's good to have that kind of heart, but let's, let's be faithful to what God is calling us to do and walking in accordance to his will that has already been revealed to us. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, God's will is for you to be set apart from him in holiness. And we talked about this and that you keep yourselves unpolluted from sexual defilement. God's given us 66 books where he reveals his will, where he reveals his word that is the rule book by which we are to govern our lives. And we ignore that and wonder, God, what is your will? It's there for us. Let's give attention to it. Let's ask God to stir our hearts with a greater passion and hunger to find his will in his word. And then finally, Paul expands on this prayer that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. And he adds this, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. See, to, to know what God has in his heart is not something that we can achieve through intellectual discipline. It's something that has to come to us by the Spirit. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. And what we've just said, it's the Word of God written by the Spirit of God that needs to become our life's work because as we immerse ourselves in this book, we will walk in the full revelation of the will of God for our lives. It's in the Word of God that we learn to love what God loves. We learn to hate what God hates. We do what God does. We value what God values. 
And the more we learn about God through his word, by his spirit, the better we know him. And the more we know him, the more we understand his perfect will. God wants his wisdom to be imparted to our hearts. You know, that's his desire. He's our Abba. He knows that we can't live a life that is pleasing to him without his wisdom causing us to understand clearly what his will is in the very depth of our heart, not with our mind. Oh, I, I think this is right. No. When the Spirit of God reveals the will of God, you know that you know that you know. No one can argue you out of it. No one could rationalize it in any other way. You know that that is the will of God. And here's his promise, Proverbs 2, 6. The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You know why that's so important? Because what we believe translates into how we behave. And isn't our Christian life all about how we behave? What good is believing if it's not dictating how we behave? And that's what Paul is going to talk about as we get into the next section. The challenge of God's word is clear, isn't it? Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world. Don't take on the shape, the mold of this world. Don't fit into the world's pattern. Don't think like the world, act like the world, feel like the world, but instead be what? Who knows Romans 12 too? Be transformed. How? By the renewing of our mind. This is what renews our mind. This is what changes how we think and what we believe and how we want to live our lives. This is what makes us intelligent disciples in knowing the will of God. But it only comes as we are filled with the knowledge of his will. And that's a prayer that we find throughout the word of God, being filled with God, being filled with the knowledge of his will is really what makes us smart. You could go through every seminary and you can have a, every degree and every THM and whatever else, the THD, I forget all the initials that you get after you go through all of those levels of higher education and you learn everything about everything in the Bible here. But how much of it do we have here in our hearts? See, God wants us filled. That word filled is not like filling a jar or a bottle where it has quantity and it's at its maximum capacity, but being filled means God has complete control of my life. Think about that this morning. How surrendered are we to the will of God? We're not filled with God when we come to this altar and we shed a few tears. We're filled with the knowledge of his will when we've turned over the reins of our life and say, now you are Lord of my life. I'm not going to sit in the back seat. I'm going to get into the trunk of the car and you take me where you want to take me. I don't need to know. All I need to know is this is where you want me to go. And I'm good with that. That's the will of God for our lives. That's what God is requiring of us. You know, sometimes we think we need more of the Spirit of God. 
the reality is we don't need more of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God needs more of us. And until we give him more of us, until we come to that place where there is a complete and a full surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every area, in every facet, in every aspect of our life, whether it's with our money, with our sexuality, with our vocation, our avocation, our family, whatever it is, needs to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're sitting here today and so, Pastor, I just need another infilling of the Holy Spirit. You don't need a greater, another infilling of the Holy Spirit. You need a greater surrender to the Holy Spirit so that, so that he can then fill you with more of the fullness of God. You know, some of us old-timers may remember the song that we sang back in the 70s, I Want More of Jesus. Any of you remember it? More and more and more. I want more of Jesus than I've ever had before. I want more of his great love, so rich, so full, so free. I want more of Jesus. Now listen to these words. So I'll give him more of me. There's the secret. If we want more of Jesus, he says, give me more of you, and then what you've given me, I can fill with myself. The more we surrender to him, the more we yield to him, the more his spirit controls us means the more of his fullness that we can have in our lives. I want to close with a very old hymn. And I'm glad we have a few old timers in this church because you would know this. I know that the new generation probably never heard this song. But... You're going to hear a song, you know, I couldn't find a contemporary version of it because I guess it wasn't made. The, the earliest one was the Blackwood Brothers, and I, I just didn't feel like that was a good, a good version to end with. But this will give you a taste of the kind of church that I grew up in and the kind of songs that we sang. And it's really a crime that we don't sing these hymns anymore because they had such deep meaning. More about Jesus would I know more of his grace to others show more of his saving fullness see more of his love who died for me more more about Jesus more more about Jesus more of his saving fullness see do, do we understand something you haven't seen the fullness of his salvation we need more of Jesus. And the more of Jesus that we get, the more of his fullness we will see, the more of his saving grace, the more of those rough edges in our lives that will be knocked off, the more of his peace and his joy and his grace we'll experience in our daily walk, more of his love who died for me. That's the prayer of my heart. I wonder if you would make it the prayer of your heart this morning as we bow our heads and uh, as media turns this song on for us I want us to sing it together the words will be on the screen